welcome to the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast, a podcast to help you recognize when your brain is treating others as enemies to be defeated instead of as people to be loved. With neuropsychologist Jim Wilder and Brigadier General Ray Woolridge, we'll discover the ways that Enemy Mode sabotages our best intentions and we'll find pathways together to refriend the people around us. Let's get to work. Friends, Jeff Davis is with us today, and he served four terms in Congress representing a, a district in Kentucky, and uh, he, he was one of the most conservative members of his the, the Republican caucus in his four terms of service, but he was able to work across the aisle. And Jeff, Jeff came, had an ability both to value the truth and also stay relational with people, even those he had great disagreements with. So, Jeff, you have a lot of experience in us and them divides, both in your military service, also in service in politics. And, and what have you learned about how us should see them, them, and treat them, people who are different than us? Well, I, I think we have to go back to the perspective that the Lord gave us, which is paradoxical, that uh, you know, loving the unloved. And it's beginning, I remember hearing this around the time we were roommates and I was a new Christian in college, that Jesus meets you where you are. Mm. And I think we have an obligation when we begin a relationship that are meaningful to us. We generally met that other person where they were and they met us where we were uh, without any pretense. And so I've experienced as a company commander, I've experienced, you know, different flavors of maturity through politics and business and all. And uh, nothing quite as raucous as being an interim pastor in churches that split up. That's always a fun thing. Oh, uh, boy opportunities to grow in character. And, uh, but the, you know, the one thing that I've seen though is somebody has to be the one to extend the hand for a basis of dialogue. Mm. Uh, I've had times in my life where uh, they perceived my niceness as weakness or my kindness as weakness. Uh, uh, my opponents learned that I could still be nice and crush them politically if I had to in a campaign, but do it with a smile and, you know, be friendly, but not mean about it. And it's a, it's a brutal business. I'll be the first to you know to tell you that. But I think I learned, I, I think part of the presupp- pre- predisposition to want to understand this, not having it termed the way you, you, you've structured it, but, you know, I was, I was abused as a child, physically, emotionally. I got beat up a lot as a kid. I was picked on. Uh, and I would occasionally meet these people who were, uh, nice to me for no reason, which I immediately distrusted. And mm. that also uh, began my journey to come to know the Lord, but without my realizing it at the time, yeah. you know, it's that there are people who are different, but the one thing I would tell you is, uh, I, I guess I put it in this context. Uh, th- these are the wounds I got from my friends at the house of God mm. in institutions that I wanted to be part of and, uh, and, and receive the affirmation of, you know, these various groups. And I began to see that, and imperfectly, I've made plenty of mistakes. I've hurt folks. I mean, I understand that we all have been in that space. I'm not drawing a moral equivalency there, but began trying to be a more effective communicator. And the more that I learned, the more my eyes were open. And what I, in the late 90s, in fact, before I ended up in this political business, you know, we were kind of doing two things simultaneously. You know, One, we're trying to turn around these businesses doing these projects. And then and I also had a, a few churches that I was doing the weekend thing entering on where there's a lot of deep seated bitterness. There's anger and emotion. People want to judge each other based on 
uh, it reminds me of my wife's two grandmothers who didn't talk for a year over an eggplant recipe. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, it sounds funny to talk about that, but that's actually human nature playing itself out in what? Enemy mode. Yeah. And the mistake, I think, that gets made in families or organizations where the enemy mode is persistent is the, the wounds are done or are committed or are perpetrated on another. And then nobody actually fixes the root problem. Now, you can't always fix it. But what I found, I, I, I try to teach my kids this, especially my, my sons, is that there's great value in listening and not reacting. You know, to be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that there's real value in that to gain some context on a situation. There are times when you have to react when it's truly life and death and you have to step into a situation to prevent a, a, a catastrophe from occurring. But that's a very rare occasion when that happens. And so what I learned, the first thing I need to do is I need to build a relational bridge mm -hmm. to have mm -hmm. a conversation. If we could, if we could circle back to that, uh, you built a relational bridge with two men in Congress with whom you had, you probably agreed on almost nothing. Mm -hmm. you, you were able to work with John Lewis and you were able to work with Barney Frank. We, what we, what we discovered was, and, and this was kind of the common ground, Richie Neal, who's now the Ways and Means Chairman for Massachusetts, and I had these conversations a lot about 10, 12 years ago, is that we can be friends. And the difference is less about what our desired end state is. Very few people come to the Congress. I mean, you, you have your high-functioning sociopaths that will get into executive positions, but, mm. but the reality is the majority of people who go through the hell that you go through really run for Congress. It is not an easy thing to do for the people who make the majorities on either side. By default, the people who've been in the toughest campaigns often are the best members because they, they have to innately develop these communication skills to survive. Mm. And... But the thing that you, you you learn in this is it's, and I, I figured this out in that first term, is that, that these other members, they wanted to do good for the country too. They were operating from different presuppositions in their worldview about what the, the let's say, the technical walking out of that policy would be, but they wanted the same end. So when we went through that terrible healthcare fight where we got the debacle of Obamacare done, mm. contrary to the media, there was no bipartisan dialogue at all. Mm. I mean, that's a whole separate story, but there was nothing meaningful that we, that we were allowed to include in the bill to fix the inherent problems that were going to be the cost drivers. And so uh, not to get off in the weeds on all the mechanics of that, but the bottom line was there was a group of us who really were process experts. We were healthcare. I was the process and systems guy. There were doctors who were healthcare experts on policy and the way the Medicare and Medicaid and these uh, you know, public healthcare systems function and understanding the, the, why the insurance markets had to adapt the way they did within policy. And the irony is I was a universal, most of us who were conservatives believed in universal access for healthcare. Mm -hmm. That's not universal healthcare. Right. That's creating capacity by reducing complexity and improving efficiency. What would drive us to that worldview? What would drive us to that worldview is most of us came from the business world and the military where we had to be like a pit crew. You had limited resources, and the only way that you could improve your performance, your speed to value, was by reducing complexity and, and simplifying the process to get to, the, to a high-quality end. Mm. The, the majority of folks who were on the other side, academically and pragmatically, didn't come from a competitive business experience. It wasn't that pit crew mindset where I have to take steps out of the process to be optimally efficient. 
they grew up in a mindset of, oh, if we just spend more money on this and mandate X. And so you had health substantial substantive healthcare policy that was written by people who had no healthcare experience. Wow. And that's yeah. and that's a norm across a lot of policy areas in the government. And when we tried to intervene on this, I, I, several of us went to Pelosi directly and said, look, I was two doctors, me and another member said, look, we've done this stuff for a living. We'll work with you all, but this is not the approach to take. And at that point, they were going to do it their way and they were going to do it their way so they could take credit for it. Mm, and when wow. Obama's legislative affairs director covering our office came over to talk to me, having heard all these stories about maybe I was a, a switchable vote. They came to me and said, you know, what do you, for your support on this bill, what would you want? Well, the whole architecture of this, they increased the uh, complexity of the federal uh, oversight system by 250%, mm-hmm. which reduced capacity commensurately in the operating units for, for healthcare delivery. When they came into my office, I said, I said, I would be willing to vote for it. And I said, we probably could bring over half the Republican conference and you'll gain the political benefit. But what we've got to do is change the IT title completely because what you have written into this policy, and I said, I'm a guy who's done over 60 system implementations. And I'm telling you, it is completely backwards. Your system's going to crash when you roll it out. It's just not going to work, which it didn't, mm-hmm. except I wasn't in Congress any longer when the debacle happened. And, and I'll never forget it when there, the, this, uh, the White House staffer looks at me and he said, oh, well, we thought you were like one of the bridge or something. And I said, I literally said this to him. I said, I said, I do want the Brent Spence I-75 bridge to be replaced because it needs it. But I said, I'm not selling my, my birthright as a congressman for a, you know, for a bridge, for a meal of, uh, you know, lentils. Mm-hmm. He didn't get the analogy, but I wasn't being condescending when I said that. I said, I said, my entire reputation would be ruined to vote for a bill I don't believe in. But I said, if you fix this part that actually fixes everything else, I said, you get the credit for it. And even IT people who were appointees in the administration were telling me, I remember the one, one guy came to my office and like, can you help us fix this? Because mm. they knew what was coming. But it was enemy mode that put that. They immediately went into that. Well, we'll give you something for this, but we're not changing yeah. anything in the legislation. Oh, Goodness. Okay. How did you- a very pleasant discussion too, but I was just kind of like, I can't help you. How did you build a bridge with Barney Frank? Lots of conversations. And having a sense of humor, mm. he would pick on himself, and he would pick on himself and make make fun of himself being gay. Mm-hmm. And I watched him twist witnesses into pretzels. It was having Barney have a contentious witness from the other side was all, especially when we were in the majority, it was always so fun to watch. Whether you agreed with anything he was saying or not, because it was he was he, it was almost like he was a puppet master because yeah. he knew the buttons to push to elicit a reaction, and uh, it's. I, I always remember the old saying, it's attributed to Sam Rayburn, but I think somebody else actually said it. He said, you don't have to explain what you don't say. And, and Barney always had the ability to make them say what they didn't want to. <laughs> so let's, uh, so, so you learned to build a relational bridge and you did that because not only did you value truth, but you, you wanted to love the other. You know, yeah. Jesus said, love your enemies. And they weren't your enemies. They were people of dignity and worth. And, and so yeah, even- I, think, I think for me, the testimony in that. So uh, a few years after I left the Hill, I was asked to come back and testify uh, at the Ways and Means Committee. And, 
with a couple other panelists, and we were testifying about uh, simplifying. Uh, th this was for my old subcommittee, but it was we were testifying about methods to simplify government processes to improve throughput and quality mm -hmm. of service mm -hmm. and, and reduce incremental cost. Right. And uh, so to, to put this into perspective, uh, Sandy Levin, who was the uh, chairman uh, when we were in the minority and then the ranking member when we were in the majority, stepped into this hearing and he was sitting in the back. And I knew something was going on in terms of perception because I'd run into these uh, uh, staffers for different subcommittees that had known me on the committee or different member, Democrat members. And I like have these people come up and give me a hug in the hallway when I'd be walking through the hallway. This is in the years after I left. It's like, how are you doing? How's your family? And we talk about this and that and move on. But it was, it was goodwill. Mm -hmm. Again, we didn't have to agree on everything and it didn't mean anybody was being a squish. It just was, there was respect and kindness. And so in, in the last, about six months before I was done in Congress, we had a rip-roaring fight one day in the uh, Ways and Means Committee. And without going into all of the details, because it'll take another 10 minutes to explain that. I mean, yeah. one of these things where the proceedings stopped and I was having it out with Javier Becerra, uh, uh, who's, you know, wasn't the easiest person to work with, to mm -hmm. put it mildly, but he made a real snide comment. And I made a comment of essentially, well, I guess you don't have very many taxpayers in your district. And he demanded that I was making racist statements and wanted to do what's called taking my words down. Mm. And I refused to withdraw my statement. And so everything was shut down. And now the reporters are all gathering in the committee room watching this, you know, this high school cafeteria drama with two guys in their fifties. And uh, so we were back in the cloakroom. Uh, Dave camp adjourned the, uh, you know, did a, did a, a recess in the hearing for a little bit. We're back in the cloakroom. And I remember Sandy Levin was very irascible personality you know, he'd been in Congress 211 years and was, uh, <laughs> no, no, I mean, he, he'd been in Congress a long time. And then to be a Democrat to get to the top of a committee like that took decades. It wasn't a thing that you could do it quickly. It's not that he was a bad guy. It's just that, you know, he lived in that enemy mode world for so mm -hmm. long. I mean, it was, there was so much adversity. And he, he came in and said, you're going to go out there and withdraw your statement. Look at me. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I didn't say anything that was inappropriate. And he poked me in the chest and I stopped and everybody got real still when he did that. And I grabbed his hand and I said, and I, I forcefully put his hand back down to his side. And I said, if you do that again, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, you're going to be on your back on the floor. Mm. All right. That was the intensity. Now, everybody calmed down and we all made up afterwards and everything. But I want to juxtapose that with a couple of years later. I'm back testifying before the committee. Sandy's comes in about halfway through the hearing as I'm testifying. He sits over on the, the chairman is always an emeritus member of any subcommittee. So he's sitting on the end. I thought, I just assumed this guy hated my guts. And uh, he goes, it, it, when the hearing is over, you know, a couple members come down, shake hands. Stuff like that. I'm, I'm getting ready to go off and do something else. So I'm walking towards the, the door in the committee room. And he comes off the dais and comes down to me, puts his hands up. And he said, Jeff, it's so good to see you. And I, I didn't, I was completely nonplussed. He comes up gives me a hug, you know, and I, I did not know what to make of that. And he pushes back like this and he goes, God, we miss you. Wow. And, and my, my point in saying that is not, Oh, I was so special or anything. Like I was being this big compromising squish or something like that. Mm. But what it, what it reminded me is we can have very strong differences and still 
love one another as he loves us. You, I, you know, I'm sure with your wife, uh, shy and retiring pastor's wife, or my shy and retiring wife from the Bronx, you know, we can have some areas in our marriages where we have differences of opinion. Yes. That's a normal thing, but we still love each other. Yes. And, wow. and respect each other. And I think that that's, that's really one of the keys in political dialogue, but I'll tell you what mitigates or militates against it. Mm. It's real simple money. Yeah. Because you got a conservative and a liberal ecosystem, whether it's an MSNBC host or hostess or a Fox host like mm -hmm. Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, mm -hmm. which they don't even do news. They do entertainment mm -hmm. by making you as angry as possible about yeah. how, how our government's being destroyed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I, I don't watch, I don't watch cable at all yeah. because I see it for what it is. It, it stirs people up to take action, but who's profiting from it? Turning Point USA, these so-called conservative and liberal influencers, organizations that are raising money out of desperation, creating fear, anger, hatred on both sides. And so they're perpetuating this. And the only way that it gets overcome is one relationship at a time. Wow, that's so powerful. And we're going to have to stop right there. And we talked okay. about this fear driving clicks, driving people into enemy mode to give money. And that's a whole nother discussion. And we may have you back to talk more about that in it. a future episode. Jeff, always a joy, brother. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Thank you, Ray, for that interview with uh, retired Congressman Jeff Davis. I, it is just so interesting to hear the inner workings of the political world. I feel like we could have uh, so many more conversations about his experience in Congress and the people that he's met and made partnerships with and burned bridges with and all those stories. Um and, and we may be able to put together a bonus episode maybe at the end of the podcast with some more of those stories. But for, for this conversation, I really wanted to focus in on the nature of politics because it feels like politics and enemy mode just go hand in glove. Like working in enemy mode is the currency in which politics operates. And Ray, as you had that conversation with Jeff, I'm curious what your thoughts are on why why does politics lend itself to enemy mode thinking so readily? Well, there's so many directions we could go. One reason is it creates an us and a them. Mm -hmm. So so you're already divided into tribes. And even within those tribes, there's families that see see things differently. So, mm. so there, there's that divide. Another thing is uh, with the advent of the 24-7 news cycle. Mm. So that, and that's something that developed in my lifetime, Jim's lifetime. So mm -hmm. someone is all the time watching and reporting what's happening. So we're talking about it constantly. And then with the rise of the internet, uh, you know, the internet has made, has made us in some ways more, uh, well, J Jonathan Haidt says we're, we're more stupid. Twitter has made us more stupid than we were 10 years ago because mm -hmm. we, 140 characters retweet and uh, join a Twitter mob to get outraged about something with partial information. Mm -hmm. So the environment they swim in is us versus them, even within their own party. And it's mm -hmm. very transactional. It's what have you done for me lately? 
and mm-hmm. and uh, and you know, I think Sam Rayburn said this from a long time ago when he was Speaker of the House, but maybe it was someone else. It's something along the lines of politics is the art of the possible. Hmm. So uh, you know, it's what you can get everybody to agree to in the moment. And mm-hmm. um, the interesting thing, though, is that I've I've been surprised to learn talking to Jeff and observing Congress and and legislatures. Really, they get a lot done uh, based on relationships across the aisle. Mm-hmm. When there's a relationship of trust, even though we have strong disagreements, when we can get in a back room and and uh, talk it out and come to some compromise, mm-hmm. that's isn't that really the best we can hope for? And it's certainly better than the alternative. The alternative yeah. is uh, the king's way, or the alternative is let's uh, all get arms and and take over. You know? Yeah, uh, and this is a nonviolent way, but it's not necessarily a, a relational. Yeah. And so these are all things that contribute to making politics an enemy mode environment. Mm-hmm. There has been a historical uh, title, though. Some people have been called statespersons. And the title is given to people who think of the welfare of the group above their individual agendas. And so there's always been a, a tendency for a few people to emerge from that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, lose lose environment to say we want to look out for the well being of of everyone, uh, and uh, they you know they become admired and and usually spend long careers uh, of forming relationships with people who they don't necessarily agree with. In fact, almost certainly do not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And and those people are maybe not the ones that are interviewed on cable news. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're typically in the back of the uh, back of the chamber working things out, or they're uh, uh, laying it on the line because it's the right thing to do for the country. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit more about cable news and its role in weaponizing enemy mode. Um, it, it really feels like there's something there that there's a partnership between making the news and particularly stupid enemy mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So t- TV news is really guilty of this because, uh, you know, that old old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. So if there's a violent story, if there's a terrible story, you know, one way to go to bed in cortisol every night is to watch the 10 o'clock local news because it's going to mm-hmm. be every car crash, every violent crime. And then here's the weather and, and sports and go to sleep. And if you're dwelling on that, so and 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 then the fact that if it bleeds, it leads, and then it's cable news where someone they're twenty four hours a day talking about mm-hmm. it. Now the other thing uh, that we talked about, I, I talked to Eric Bentz in our book, and Eric was deployed to the Middle East, standing watch in an operations center for t- during twenty four seven ops, and they always had a channel on. And he said, literally every fifteen minutes, the crawler across the bottom of the screen had the out had outrage. And, and uh, it was triggering people into fear. Now, fear mm. is a driver of enemy mode thinking. Well, fear actually comes in two forms. They're chemically the same in the brain, uh, but we call one of them anger, hot anger, and the other we call fear. And it just depends on the valence. If, if you have a threat and you want to run away, we call it fear. But if we have a threat and we want to stop it, uh, and so outrage is that kind of fear, but with the all that adrenaline says we want to stop it. And so uh, if we can keep giving people a, a buzz of adrenaline, uh, you know, they really 
engage and they do something like stay on our channel mm-hmm. or click on our ads or donate to our cause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the thing is you comp- combine the news with advertising and advertising yeah. is designed to trigger you into enemy mode or fear of missing out. And so mm-hmm. it, it, it politically, it could be whatever cause you want, name a cause. If you get a letter in your mailbox says you have to give to this right now, or they will do this to mm-hmm. you or they mm-hmm. will take this away from you. It's triggering people uh, to fear and enemy mode in response. And they raise money that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the most helpful books that I've read on this topic was how to watch TV news by Neil Postman. Have either of you guys okay. read that before? No, I'll no. have to get, I'll have to take a look. Oh, it, it is so good. I mean, it's, it was written 30 years ago now in 1992. And basically he's identifying how, TV news is masquerading as giving you the information that you need, but it is really an entertainment program designed to keep your attention. Mm -hmm. And particularly with TV news, it needs some visual confrontation to hook you in. Mm. And, and yeah, you see a lot of connection and coordination between politics and that, that 24 seven news cycle and needing to create this controversy to, to keep people's attention. Um, and it, it, it reminds me of the story that Jeff was telling where, where he was in a situation where he had the guy come up and poke him in the chest. And <laughs> it's like, that seems like it's a situation that's like designed to provoke enemy mode where it's like, you are feeling like somebody is in your face. They are, you're in a dangerous situation and you need to respond in a way that's going to eliminate the threat. Yeah. He had the presence of mind. I believe that happened on the well of the house and he yeah. had the presence of mind to, to defuse the situation, but yeah. he used a threat in response. Basically don't do that again. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually it's interesting because he, t- he told me offline that they, they were able to work that out later. Yeah. They were able to come to some agreement uh, that was uh, mutually beneficial. Now, the other thing is you you wanted to talk a little bit about the Obamacare passing in 2008, 2009, and and most of our listeners will remember that. Mm -hmm. It was passed on party line vote. There was almost no no, uh, opposition party voice into the passage of the legislation. And uh, Mm -hmm. when when the White House was running the, the negotiations to get it passed, uh, the staffers came to Jeff Davis and asked him if he could support it. Yeah. And would he support it? Because Jeff's background professionally before Congress was in healthcare. Yeah. And in fact, there were a number of Republicans who were professional healthcare specialists. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, look, we want what's best for the country. We could help you make this better. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, well, I thought all you wanted was a bridge to be named after somebody or a highway to be, to be uh, improved. And, and yeah. so they, they were offering payoffs rather than let's make this better. And that was definitely an enemy mode encounter to get votes. They were trying to buy votes. And he said, I w- I'm not going to sell my vote just to get a bridge. I, I yeah. would, I would vote for something that is better. Now, from a brain perspective, that's an enemy mode encounter right there. Very transactional, Jim, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's um, uh, how do I win was the objective uh going into the the encounter but then we have 
Jeff, who's trying to say, you know, what are my values? So he's he's bringing something beyond enemy mode. He's bringing himself back in um, mm-hmm. to the whole thing. And and another question is how do you uh, how do you raise politics to a place where we can bring our best selves, not just um, uh, you know get a, a win. Uh, for uh, in this case, a very good purpose. You know, healthcare is mm-hmm. something that uh, you know uh, it matters a lot to to all of us. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, winning versus the the common good um, has it's even in academia. At academia, it's been a debate whether, in fact, human beings are oriented towards the, the common good or not, and it disappeared from the academic circles for about 50 years or maybe mm-hmm. 100 for quite a while. And now it's coming back into focus that that people are actually interested in what's good for uh, for their identity groups, the, the common good. And I think it, mm-hmm. it's time that's part of coming out of enemy mode is to realize um, you know, our common good does actually matter to people. If we could use that as a way to resolve problems, to get votes, to get projects done, it mm-hmm. it would be a major improvement in where things are headed. Mm-hmm. But I feel like one of the challenges to that is the the game of politics right now. It seems like you get more uh, advantage by making the other side lose than even making your own side win. So it's like the the negative attack ads are more effective for winning votes or for the end result of the votes than it is for even building up your own side. Well, here's the thing that goes back to what uh, Ray was just telling us. And that is, you know, the 24 seven news and the internet allows people to get pinged very repeatedly and Mm. anger actually disappears very fast as a motive. And so does fear. Hmm. Uh, So if you let people stop and think for a minute, they would go, oh, but I don't really think that's in my best interest. That would emerge. Mm. But if you can ping them every 15 minutes and keep them in a irritated state of mind, uh, you can actually get the fastest results. Mm. Uh, uh, but you have to keep pinging people until they become exhausted. And, of course, that's a high-stress way to live, uh, mm. a good way to pump cortisol, the stress hormone is, that Ray was talking about. And and one of my favorite stories that that Jeff told in in greater detail in another interview, but he kind of mentioned in this one was um, how he befriended Barney Frank, uh, two guys that are on the complete different ends of the spectrum, and often at odds politically, and on I mean fighting each other there, and yet they were able to build a friendship together. Hmm. Uh, why? Why is that so difficult to cross party lines like that, to cross so far to the other side? And what do you think are some of the helpful strategies that that Jeff took in being able to build that bridge? Well, he tells the story of going into a meeting for the first time with Congressman Frank and his staff. And the issue Mm. was a, a bill that would improve housing for the poor. Mm-hmm. And Jeff was Jeff is very passionate about that issue because of his personal story and the childhood mm-hmm. he came, came into, uh, how he grew up as a child. And uh, yet in the meeting, he was accused of not caring about the poor. You, you, yeah. you guys, 
on that side of the aisle have never met a poor person. You don't know any poor people. And, and Jeff responded before everybody in the meeting, well, maybe you ought to get to know some of us better. Hmm. And uh, he asked that the room be cleared. And he and the congressman, Frank, they sat across the table and they got to know one another. And he told his personal story. And that led to some productive legislation hmm. that improved funding for housing for the poor. Mm-hmm. But it took a personal connection. So yeah. if if we're not going to stay relational and we're not going to build that connection, it's going to be difficult. And so a strategy that Jeff employed in that moment was mm-hmm. drop his guard, be personal with this individual who was the ranking member on that committee. And at this point in his career, Jeff was, I think, maybe a freshman in Congress. Mm-hmm. And, and yet he was so passionate about that issue. And along the way, they were able to continue working where, where, where they could on, mm-hmm. on things like that. Yeah. And I imagine the temptation in that moment, if you're in, I would think, an intelligent enemy mode phase is Jeff could have used that comment and weaponized it. Against yeah. Barney, he could have mm-hmm. taken that, taken it to the press and said, look how bad and out of touch they are. They make assumptions and you could use that to try and take the other person down a peg. But it's a little bit more vulnerable to talk with somebody one on one. And it takes, I don't know, like offering a little bit of personal connection of having yeah. that tinge of vulnerability to to start that relationship. There's there's another example that's not in the book, it's not in the podcast, but uh, Jeff got into a little bit of a, a hot water with some comments he made about Senator Barack Obama. Mm. When 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 Barack announced he was running for president, Jeff made some comments in an interview that that went viral, and mm. um, and he realized it, and he immediately went to Senator Obama's office and apologized. Hmm. And and uh, the content comments were taken out of out of uh, out of context, mm-hmm. but anyway, uh, he he was able to be himself under pressure. And how did he become that person? Mm. And how did he uh, even without the language of enemy mode? Our book had not been written in two thousand and eight, but he was able to keep it relational and to center himself, remember his best self, and act that way, uh, mm-hmm. even at political risk which is admirable. It is. I just want to extend a very big thank you to, to Congressman Jeff Davis for his graciousness in having an interview with us and just grateful for all the ways that he has worked to serve the least, to serve the poor, to serve the homeless. Um, And yeah, just want to reflect on the, the, the people who have done good in the world and be grateful for that. Uh, Well, we are very excited for our next episode coming out. We are with uh, General Becky Halstead, and we are going to be talking about how to calculate the least harmful alternative. So thank you guys for, for joining us today, and we will talk to you again next time. You've been listening to the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast. To learn more about the book by Dr. Jim Wilder and Ray Woolridge, visit escapingenemymode.com.